and welcome to All Year Round, a monthly podcast about British and Irish literature and culture in the 19th century. I'm your host, Dr Hayley Flynn, and I research dreams and periodicals in the 19th century, alongside my co-host, Emma Probit, who researches literary connections between Austen and Gaskell and the novel of Manners. So today we're going to be talking about the seaside, mm-hmm. and you know how much I love Alice in Wonderland. Yes. So I thought we'd start off with Alice at the Seaside, which I don't know whether you remember that from the book. It's only a really small part from the beginning, but in the part where she's grown huge and she cries that big pool of tears, and then she shrinks and she mm-hmm. falls into the pool of tears, which is now like a an ocean, it says her first idea was that she had somehow fallen into the sea. And in that case, I can go back by railway, she said to herself. Alice had been to the seaside once in her life and had come to the general conclusion that wherever you go on the English coast, you find a number of bathing machines in the sea, some children digging in the sand with wooden spades, then a row of lodging houses, and behind them, a railway station. So Alice in Wonderland was published in 1865. It was conceived a few years before that. But the thing that I thought was really interesting about that quote is because when Alice enters Wonderland, she's obviously trying to find like real life things to to rationalise what's happening to her. And that's the thing that that reminds her of. And I think the humour of that also comes from Carol knowing that people reading it would also find those things familiar. Like, this is the seaside. And actually, there are a couple of things there that I think we would also think of as the seaside like you, you dig in the sun with a spade that's what children do at the seaside bathing machines not so much so no, but maybe bathing huts yeah which actually they really remind me of i mean for those who haven't seen them bathing machines were kind of like seaside huts on wheels so <laughs> a horse would have to pull those into the sea um, and then you could step down the doorway of the the bathing machine and you could just swim around outside the little modesty of your individual hut without anyone disturbing you. I don't know about you, but I find that concept quite scary because you would need the horse to be chill enough not to get spooked by just being stood in the sea. And also there's just like a lot of contraption happening around you. Yeah, there is. There's a lot kind of involved in going bathing at the seaside. But actually we're coming to that <laughs> a bit later. So the thing that... Um, this kind of also made me think when I was thinking about that Alice quote and how everybody kind of recognises this as seaside mm. because obviously for the, the hundred years that we look at the whole of the 19th century mm. that's a long time in which <laughs> things are going to change so I was thinking about how that idea would have changed and how it kind of became that seaside image yeah. that we still think of yeah. now so in the kind of uh, the, well in the 18th century towards the late 18th century the seaside was like a medical cure so yes. your doctor would prescribe you a trip to seaside for for various ailments <laughs> lots of different things could be cured uh, with a trip to the seaside um and that is it's obviously in in the literature of the time and and everything like that but even then going to the seaside for the purposes of you are sick and you have to go that's really just something for rich people because for actually for a couple of reasons so actually traveling to the seaside um they would have to go by carriage Mm -hmm. 
And aside from the fact that if you don't have your own carriage, you have to get like a, a public one, which is really unreliable, then you'd also have to pay for that. So that's an issue. But even if you are wealthy and you can get a carriage, it's really slow. So it's going to take ages to get there uh, from pretty much all the big cities. So if you imagine London by carriage, oh, it's no. hours and hours long. Oh, God. And then like changing over horses yeah. as well. And then the feed for the horses. It's all just a lot of expense and a lot of fuss. Yeah. And actually there are even some sources that suggest that um, the kind of innkeepers on the way and the people who um, did the trips if you were going on like a general one they would they were kind of in in league with each other so the the coach drivers would stop at particular mm, places yeah so you'd kind of have to get your food there and that sort of thing so yeah it wasn't an ideal situation therefore obviously a lot of people didn't go for um not not wealthy people as well there's also the issue of can you actually get time off work yeah to go so the Factory Act, that so was in 1833, that meant that under-18s had some time off. They had uh, eight half days a year and Christmas and Good Friday. Okay. And that was it. <laughs> so still has not, not really helped much. But then moving away from the carriages, we, they then had the steamers. Mm. Um, and that this is still pretty early in the, the 1800s, but we're starting to like move now into it's a bit. A bit more convenient. The steamers were a lot faster and they were actually reasonably cheap. Well, they were quite cheap, actually. So I think um, Alan Delgado, there's a, there's a book. It's a really pretty book called Victorian Entertainment. And uh, he says that it would cost sixpence from mm. London to Gravesend. That's fairly so, reasonable, actually. Yeah, that's really not bad at all. So now it was a bit more possible. Then the railway happened. So... I mean, railway, obviously, whenever we're talking about Victorian things, the railway just changes so much. Um, but the railways were still expensive. Mm -hmm. So that's still something that you're only going to do if you're, like, fairly well off. Um, until this guy called Roland Hill, who was the chairman of the Brighton Railway Company in the 1840s, um, he made the excursion train. So you could get an excursion train, and it had cheap tickets on certain days mm -hmm. so like say if you went on a Saturday you'd be able to get an excursion ticket and you could also get a really good deal on return tickets as well so you could go for the day to the seaside and get a return ticket back so that obviously makes it a lot a lot easier and by the 1870s uh, I think it's 1871 actually they have the bank holiday act mm -hmm. which then means that there's actually quite a few bank holidays five bank holidays i think for scotland six for england and so there are actually some days where you might be able to go to the seaside oh that'd be nice i wonder, how, I wonder if there's like a history of many like seaside trips in may because now we have so many may bank holidays yeah i mean a lot of the holiday uh, kind of seaside stuff that i mm. saw was in june and august um, but then there is also the element of when it's kind of fashionable to go to the seaside because, Ooh. yeah, those sources do tend to be quite middle class. So, yeah. But again, something that I'm going to think about in a minute because actually when this happened and suddenly people could go to the seaside a lot easier, obviously it immediately got a lot busier yeah. and a lot more built up because they had to build accommodation for people to stay in and you know some people were like oh it's ruined the view of the seaside and there were um yeah it, it was a lot 
was a lot more crowded mm-hmm. and obviously there's now a lot more mix of classes mm-hmm. which isn't great for some people some people aren't that happy about the, <laughs> the new mix of classes happening so there's uh, again in, in Delgado's book he points out a poem from Punch Ooh. from um, from 1885 which is not a positive view of the seaside so this poem goes the country crammed the seaside jammed the trains a crush the river a rush oh is it not a jolly day all shops shut the streets all smut no room in the park for the poor bank clerk not a bank but a blank holiday and that was accompanied by a, a picture of a clerk enjoying his bank holiday just at home because he can't go anywhere now that it's so busy <laughs> so, oh god forbid <laughs> yeah so there's that kind of side to it it's definitely not seen as um, positive all round but also now that it's getting busier that like obviously changes the face of kind of the, the seaside i think into a bit more of of what we see it as now because there's a lot more entertainment happening mm. so the piers instead of just being for the steamboats to to dock in mm-hmm. they were generally used for live music mm. now at this stage oh, so, yeah so you had a lot of like brass bands again some people didn't like that some people thought it was a bit like loud and a bit much but you had you I suppose have. if you're going there to convalesce yeah and all of a sudden yeah. there's like a brass band going for it you might be a bit like I want rest <laughs> yeah so I mean that kind of image of it changing I mean definitely in that case you can see that and then you'd have like the the circuses and the fairgrounds would come at like the the popular times of the year and there were things like going on donkey rides and stuff like that and the Punch and Judy show. And Punch and Judy, yeah. <laughs> Very Victorian, love Punch and Judy. <laughs> Incredibly weird, but... Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the, um, that's changing then hugely. And now it's this kind of, like, much more fun, generally, um, place to be. It's, there's a lot of kind of things that you might go and, and pay for, little entertainments yeah. and things to do. And, and yeah, and one of the things, actually, that... Um, Delgado points out as another downside what you were saying it's a lot of effort to kind of get the bathing machines and go swimming you can't just like run into the sea in your bathing costume like it's just not that simple and you have to buy a bathing costume that's another expense yeah so the kind of fashion of the seaside that was quite quite a specific thing in itself I mean the the bathing costumes that actually I think we generally think of as um, that's that's a Victorian bathing suit. So if you've seen them, they're kind of um, like up to your neck and down to your knees. Mm. Uh, almost like a like a jumpsuit kind of. But yes, yeah, some of them quite inadvisably made of wool. Yes, yeah. So not hugely comfortable. But even they only came in in the kind of late 1800s. So before that, you would just wear like a nearly full length dress, mm-hmm. like just not just quite down to your ankles. Um, no, you could you would get completely in the in the sea in the dress. Okay, this is giving me massive flashbacks to one of those. Did you ever see like um like a TV program of like oh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like um like the top ten ways to die in like a certain period. And I think I can't. I think it's in the medieval period. One of them is like drowning because everyone's wearing like wool things, and then you go to like the river to like get your water. And if you get wet, then it's like impossible yeah, to get back out the river. Down. So now I'm 
scared. Yeah. I mean, you did have kind of um, assistants or yeah. people called dippers. Oh. You would kind of like, um, this is for if you're, you're sick, if you're going there for a cure, they would just like push you into the water. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not a thing that you go and do on your own, so I guess that made it a bit safer. Yeah. But yeah, dress, corset, um, bloomers, it was, you would be expected to wear all Imagine of trying to get out the effort, the effort of crawling back yeah, out. Yeah, also just on. feel horrible, horrible when you're all like wet. Horrible. And, yeah. At least you've got the bathing machine to get changed. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least there's a huge crowd of people as well. So even if you start to drown, somebody should try and help you. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. Although you are in your little kind of bathing machine area that's supposed to be private. Um, but Yes. So, I mean, that was that was a pain. You'd have to go and do that. And then obviously you've got to wait for the bathing machines to all be mm. taken out by the horses. And therefore, this is just really time consuming and a bit of a pain. It wasn't the same for men. They just generally bathe naked and that was fine. Oh, my for that, word. <laughs> for that reason, it was also um, like separated. The men oh. weren't allowed to swim by the women's bathing machines. And there were also rules about if you were like on a pleasure boat, mm-hmm. you couldn't get within a certain distance of the bathing machines. Otherwise, you would be fined because you might be, you know, trying to look at the women in the water. My God, I have a very uncouth thing to say that we might want to cut out. Go ahead. <laughs> um, if there's so many horses in the water, what happens when the horses need to go to the toilet? That's quite disgusting. I know, but I was just so just it just cropped into my mind and I was like, no, it won't go away. And I was thinking, what was the protocol? Was there a device? Was there did it have to be specifically positioned with the tide so that you could a bit like, you know, they talk about like, you know, being downwind of things. I guess you would just hope that it would just hope to use the bathroom after being unhooked. On the bathing machine <laughs> until it got safely back to the sand. <sighs> yeah, um, I don't think that would be very good for you. No, good for your cure no. at the seaside. No, no, no definitely not. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, actually, speaking of <laughs> images of that of that early one, so. We were talking about, actually the reason we kind of started talking about the seaside was because we were talking about the cover of the Oxford World Classics edition of Sanderton. Yes. So um, actually they posted this, I can't remember why they posted it, Oxford World Classics, on Twitter, I think. And people, some people really didn't, really didn't like the cover. They hated it. They were mad. (laughs) So it's um. If you haven't seen it, it's a illustration of a completely naked woman who's jumping headfirst, quite joyfully, out of the back of a bathing machine and into the sea. Um, and actually, it's—I mean, some people were saying, you know, it's not—it's not the right era. Um, this isn't what women would have done. But it yeah. is from the late 18th century. It's actually by a really famous caricaturist, um, Tom and Roll- Thomas, sorry, Rawlinson, um, and he was actually quite famous for doing medical uh, satire, medical caricature, which does fit. And it makes even more sense. There's um, there's a nice article by Rachel Johnson. It's called The Venus of Margate. 
fashion and disease at the seaside. Uh, and she, she's talking about that exact illustration, not, not as a cover for Sanderton, but um, generally. And she's talking about how there was this kind of really problematic kind of fashion mm-hmm. of sickness, of illness. Yes. So the, um, the fact that there were people at the seaside early in the century and into the, the late 18th century who were, some of them were genuinely sick and some of them were like fashionable sufferers. This is something that was quite often satirized. And she talks about that particular image as an interesting like part of that satire because mm-hmm. it's showing somebody with a healthy body instead of the general kind of like sick body at the seaside. Um, and that's, yeah, I thought that that was an interesting one. And it did make me look at Sanderton, which, you know, you're more familiar with than me. You're the one who told me about Sanderton because, you know, you're the Austin expert here. But I do have, which I hope you'll be pleased with me for, a quote from Sanderton. <laughs> Don't do tell. <laughs> this is about Mr. Parker. Hmm. And Mr. Parker says that you can't really be in a state of secure health and this is quote now, without spending at least six weeks by the sea every year. The sea air and sea bathing together were nearly infallible, one or the other of them being a match for every disorder of the stomach, the lungs, or the blood. They were antispasmodic, antipulmonary, antiseptic, antibilious, and antirheumatic. Nobody could catch cold by the sea, Nobody wanted appetite by the sea. Nobody wanted spirits. Nobody wanted strength. If the sea breeze failed, the sea bath was the certain corrective. And where bathing disagreed, the sea air alone was evidently designed by nature for the cure. Secural? I mean, yeah, that's that's very strong feelings about the sea for Mr. Parker. It is. And if we jump back to persuasion... Not okay, so Sanderton makes you healthy, persuasion, seaside makes you hot. So, <laughs> so one of my favorite bits, um, is actually when Anne goes uh, to Lyme, you know, with the with the group. So she goes to Captain Wentworth, Louisa, Charles, you know, the, the whole yeah. group go down, they actually go in an unfashionable time. It's quite wet and windy, and it's it's not no one's really around, it's quite a boring trip because there is nobody around. But because they spend so long walking along the cob, which is, um, it's like a jettison. It like points out of the sea. I have never walked it. I'm quite nervous to walk it, <laughs> even. Not because I'm going to jump off of it like Louisa, but it just, I feel like a strong gust of wind would have me over. Yeah. Um, but when Anne's walking along it, like basically she kind of gets um, like windburn basically. And it kind of like brings out her yeah. rosy cheeks and like, Captain Wentworth is there going, Anne looks good. And he sees Mr. Elliot looking at Anne, and Mr. Elliot is clearly thinking, Anne's looking good. <laughs> so, yeah, seaside. Oh, okay, this is, yeah, this multifaceted. Is unexpected, yeah, thing of the seaside. Actually, it, in um, Rachel Johnson's article, she's talking about how there is also that sexualized aspect to the mm-hmm. seaside in, um, in Rowlandson's work, because actually, if you um, the the cover of Sanderton of that Oxford World Classics it's kind of zoomed in mm. on one part of the picture but if you come out of that you can there are people standing on the cliff watching oh scandalised the woman oh, yeah my. and it's actually it's part of a set of pictures 
And um, the other ones are also kind of people like trying to catch a glimpse of the the bathing Venus. That's what it's called mm-hmm. um, in in the water. So yeah, there is that that element as well in in the art in that kind of satire. Just, just let her go for a swim. She's just have, living her life. <laughs> her live her life. Yeah. I mean, it was. It was genuinely unusual for, like, it wasn't yeah. It wasn't a generally accepted thing to go bathing nude if you were a woman, but this is presumably why Rawlinson decided to do it. I wonder whether anyone was trying to peek at the men, because apparently they were just all out there. Yeah. Yeah. Hanging so, out. Yeah, that was fine if you were. <laughs> if you were a man. It kind of, that... The mixing or getting closer together, like the lighter you get into the 1900s, mm-hmm. into like the early, into the 1800s, sorry, into the early 1900s, like then it's okay. Then you can kind of mix together and the men have the, the bathing suits on and women have their bathing suits on down to the knee. And <laughs> so, yeah, maybe a little, like a little awkward at first. There's some kind of social um, images of awkward moments of like men and women accidentally going to the wrong bathing machine. Oh, no. <laughs> So yeah, still still slightly fraught, but um, not <laughs> to the same degree. I mean, it's a little bit. No, I'm just trying to think. Well, it's it's mid century because uh, North and South was published in like 1854. But there's that bit where Margaret goes to Cromer. Um, after she's experienced several losses, and she just kind of like sits on the beach and just stares into the ocean and just thinks about what she wants to do with her life and who she wants to be. And you've now just made me think, <laughs> I've always imagined her on like this beach alone. Cause again, what, you know, 19th century writers, apparently they do like a beach that's empty. So everyone goes yeah. around fashionable seasons, <laughs> but you did just give me like quite a funny image of maybe Margaret Stewart. And I was like a fairground and this bunch of, <laughs> where she's just like in her own little world. <laughs> oh, this is happening around her donkey goes past. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it actually when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about like the books that, mm. that did come to mind for me about the set the seaside, and it reminded me of Dickens. And I was thinking about in David Copperfield how um, Betsy Trotwood she lives by the sea, so she lives in Dover. Mm-hmm. And um, Peggotty, well, not originally, but where she moves to, Peggotty and Little Emily and Ham, they all live in like pretty much on the sea in what used to be a boat. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very seaside. And that also has that very kind of, um, like, relaxed um, element to the sea. When he goes to stay with, when David Copperfield goes to stay with um, Aunt Betsy and he he's in his bedroom for the first time and he can hear the sea outside and it's kind of that moment where it's like, oh, it's everything's going to be okay. It's nice and relaxing. You do also get tragedy of sea in David Copperfield later without giving any spoilers away. But, um, yeah, so I think they definitely do have that nice, like, quiet, relaxing element. Um, the sea in kind of Victorian literature, I think, has a lot more complexity than thinking about just general the seaside. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that would take us too long to talk about in this it would. episode. It would. But yeah, generally, they're kind of being good for you, though. That is... That stays. So from that, like, 1700s, the 18th century, and its doctors are writing articles about how this is, you know, the sea is a cure for this and it's a cure for that, and it's very scientific. Still into, you know, the Victorian period, and, you know, you've seen this definitely, it's still good for you. And even now, people are like, oh, the sea air, it'll it'll be good for you. It's meant to be bracing and full of salt. 
so there's that. And then there's also, which I thought was particularly interesting, the fact that it's good for you in a kind of educational way as well. Ooh, because expand. Yeah, a lot of the things that I saw when I was looking at this, um, I had a look at a couple of periodicals, you know, as I do, just <laughs> periodicals, and uh, a lot of the things that were in there were about collecting things and studying things at the seaside. Mm. So like seashells, fossils, also the kind of the fish, the the flora, yeah. and things like that. Collecting for aquariums. Um, Very French lieutenant woman. So like postmodern, looking back at the Victorian, and so much mm. of that is based in yeah fossils and digging things up. Yeah, and so. So there's an article, My Visit to the Seaside in the Ladies' Treasury. And obviously I spotted that and I immediately was like, okay, I've got, got to read that one. And I thought it would be kind of, you know, like a bit of a travel thing or possibly fiction. Yeah, something like that. But it's actually, when you start reading it, just completely about seashells. Oh, so there's a lot of detail there's the common names of the shells the scientific names of the shells what the shells might look like at different stages as they change there's um how pearls are formed and it's just actually lots of scientific detail and it portrayed in this like kind of informal conversational way um but yeah it was similar to a lot of of science articles in in general periodicals and in women's periodicals. Um, and there was also one in a, a ladies' newspaper called The Queen, uh, which was called um, A Walk on Fossil Ground. And that was similar, similar tone, similar thing, but all about collecting fossils. So mm. actually, I took a quote from that one because I thought it was particularly nice. Um, it was in 1862, this one. And that one says... Those of our fair ladies who may have visited that queen of watering places, Scarborough, may be said to have been the visitants of a place the most modern and yet the most ancient. The most modern as regards the alamode of the seaside society and the most ancient as regards the era of its fossil flora and fauna. Yeah, so that also contains like a lot of advice, kind of what what you should do, how you should get the fossils, who you should speak to while you're there about kind of getting advice for your fossil hunting. And then it finishes with the, a note that ammonites make really nice brooches and you can set them in gold or silver or aluminium, is one of the suggestions, <laughs> depending on your preference. That'll be a very pretty brooch, which I just thought was <laughs> quite interesting. Obviously, when we think of fossils, it's I, well, I always think of Mary Anning and yeah, and that um, and that story of of her being, you know, quite quite an incredible pioneer of of fossils. I don't. There's nothing to suggest that there's that excitement of maybe you'll discover you know, a completely new extinct creature, but maybe you know the, these are things that are easy to find, like ammonites, things that will be a fun thing for you to do, and then you might have this piece of jewelry afterwards. So I think that was quite um quite a nice combination of this is a fun thing to do at the seaside, but also science at the seaside. Yeah, I quite like it because you know so much of what we think about, actually, in terms of entertainment, seems I suppose more geared towards younger people. Mm -hmm. So like the Punch and Judy shows, I mean a, a donkey ride again. It's it's potentially for people of all ages, but you might want to do something. A little bit different. You might not want to do the same thing every single time that you go to the seaside. And yeah. I think the idea of 
you know, taking back momentums as a trip. It's like a really nice idea because actually I think maybe would be like a nice thing to maybe revitalize in like the modern day because like we go to the seaside and we pick up a shell because we think oh this is pretty you take it home maybe you pop it on your mantelpiece might be quite nice to know being like what animal did this belong to at one point and maybe making it to something yeah yeah and I think that kind of the the extreme popularity of that collecting Mm. seems to have like seeped into a lot of things it's interesting how it did sort of pass out again of um, our popularity we did actually there is um there's a chapter called science at the seaside in a book that's called cultures of the atlantic edge um coastal works and they start talking about um george henry lewis and oh i didn't know that he was yes actually i thought that this might be particularly interesting to you because it also mentions george Eliot. so <laughs> that's why i took this one you just reminded me <laughs> so they're talking about how um, in 1858, George Henry Lou says that the sea anemone was now the ornament of countless drawing rooms, studies and back parlours, as well as the delight of unnumbered amateurs. Um, and they're talking about how actually Lou's book, Seaside Studies at Ilfracombe, Tembe, the Silly Isles in Jersey, which came out in 1858, that's part of that fashion. So you would, you know, that book and that book was based on a trip that he and George Eliot took and it did make me wonder how much actually she might have yeah been involved in contributing yeah. to that volume but um yeah that'd be interesting to know mm, it would so <laughs> yeah I think that kind of rabbit hole that I went down there was so much like in the the queen there's lots of there's seaside fashions, what you should be wearing, there's seaside etiquette, like if you're only going for a short seaside trip, should you call on your acquaintances if they are also there? Like you really not to what happens if you don't call on them and then you bump into them? And there's all of that kind of stuff in there as well. I suppose some of them, if you bump into them, but oh I was just coming over <laughs> Unless you're already on the train back home, then it's a little bit like, yeah. oh, whoops. Or one of the other um, scenarios was, what if you don't call on them, and then somebody else who's there tells them that you're there, but you haven't called on them. <laughs> so. Oh, no. I wonder if you could plead that you had small children. It's just like, have a brood, please. I I don't <laughs> have all the time in the world. We, we only had a day. There's an excursion ticket as well. You've got to get everyone packed up onto the train. You've got to get there, get everything sorted out, and then you've got to get the train. Home. So you're only there for a few hours. Yes. And actually, in this uh, this advice kind of column, in it, this was in the Queen. Mm. Um, the author was saying that you know if you're only there for a short amount of time, you don't want to spend a sunny afternoon having to entertain somebody who potentially you're not actually that close to. Yeah. Particularly if it's only like 15 minutes, so if we're taking that as sort of the Walmart figure, mm. um, I realise that, you know, it's maybe not, but it comes <laughs> up in a lot of um, literature, a lot of gaspel as well, of having that quarter of an hour. But then you have to go to yeah. the place, wherever they are, in that particular watering hole, do the 15 minutes, and it's just like, well, what was the point? Yeah, get into your bathing machine <laughs> yeah and like if you want to talk to me we're doing it in the bathing machine <laughs> just like 
I'm happy to have a visit, but I will be in the water. Yeah, that would be much more practical. They should have suggested meeting in the bathing machine. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, my brain just went to tea in a bathing machine, like trying to have like, a tea party <laughs> in a bathing machine. Oh, the stress of it. Oh, then there's a horse. <laughs> oh, no. That'd be quite fun. <laughs> but yeah, if everything went to plan. <laughs> I'm probably quite glad that we we don't have bathing machines now. But I do like the fact that when you do go to the seaside, there are still so many Victorian things. Like I used to I love donkey rides at the seaside. I love Punch and Judy at the seaside. Yeah. The fairground. Stick yes. Rock, which kind of comes in late, late 1800s yes. as well. And yeah. yeah. And I think... It's, it is interesting looking at that development over time, especially when there are so many things that just carried on. Because these these are things that we think seaside. You think Punch and Judy, you imagine it's the seaside. You think donkey rides, you imagine seaside. And these are very Victorian things to be doing. And I just like that. I love that too. And I also love to think about George Eliot at the seaside as well. Yeah. Which is a very nice transition because our episode today has been on Victorian summer holidays. Mm-hmm particularly seaside. So nice transition into our next episode because Hayley and I are going on our summer holidays. And so our next episode will be about George Eliot. Yes. Yes. And we will be doing some some interesting trips coming up soon. Yes. Which you won't spoil yet. (laughs) Yes. All all top secret. (laughs) So I hope you enjoyed the seaside feeling very summery it is really warm today so hopefully by the time this comes out it will still be still be nice weather maybe not quite as hot (laughs) yes um it's currently the heat wave in june (laughs) which is a perfect time for the seaside it is don't get too hot (laughs) yes but i think for now we'll pop off maybe grab an ice cream yes excellent idea thank you so much (laughs) love to provide an ice cream anyway thank you so much for joining us bye bye